We have learned a great deal about the neurobiology of mood disorders in the last 10 years. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dan Diamond. Dr. Diamond is an experienced family physician and an award-winning educator. He is a family physician in private practice in Silverdale, Washington, where he also serves as clinical assistant professor for the University of Washington School of Medicine. Welcome. Thanks, Leslie. So, Dan, the longer someone is depressed, often the more difficult it is for them to reach full remission with treatment. Any thoughts about that? You know, I, I guess if you started back up and look at the patient from a distance, you could think about this. Maybe some of this has to do with some rigidity in their environment after they become depressed They've been depressed for a while. Their environment kind of adapts to treating them a certain way. And if you take another step or so closer and you start looking at their them as an individual, maybe it's that they get certain thought habits over time and they start looking at the world from a certain perspective. But I think the most fascinating part is to take a look even deeper and look at the neurobiology that's going on underneath it all. And that may come down to this lack of neuroplasticity or a potential irreversible changes that could happen in the brain over time. So, Dan, what kind of irreversible changes? Well, we're looking at changes now uh, in the area of the hippocampus and loss of cell volume over time, which is fascinating. As I've tried to figure out how to explain this to patients, what I tell them is that the nerves in their brain and the front part of their brain branch out like a tree. And they have bunches of these branches that go out and interact with other nerve cells. And then those branch out. But over time, when you're depressed, those trees start to shrivel up. And if you stay depressed long enough, they shrivel down to the point where these, what used to be fabulous trees, shrivel down to look sort of like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And in the process, you start seeing loss of cell volume within areas of the brain, such as the hippocampus. So is it possible that our treatments actually help arborize these trees again? They do. At least that's what we think. We're just kind of right on the cutting edge of this research right now. When we looked at the SheLine just published an article in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2003 that looked at untreated depression showing a loss of hippocampal volume. And Sheline's conclusion was that antidepressants may have a neuroprotective effect during depression. What they did is they took 38 female outpatients and looked at how long they had been depressed before they did their scans, divided up into days where the patients were receiving antidepressants, and looked at this over time, and they found that when patients were depressed and not on antidepressants, the longer they were depressed, the more shrinkage they found in their hippocampal volumes. But if somebody was on an antidepressant over time, you didn't see that shrinkage in the hippocampal volumes. The problem is we can't, you know, get medical students to volunteer for brain biopsies to see what's really going on in these patients. So if you put somebody on antidepressant, we believe that it stops that loss of hippocampal volume and is protective for the brain. We hear a lot about brain-derived neurotrophic factor now, or BDNF. Could you review that for us, too? That is kind of the, the buzzword, isn't it? This BDNF, and everybody wants to talk about BDNF. This is fun stuff. BDNF is like brain vitamins, and that's what I tell my patients. BDNF is secreted by the neurons themselves, and 
with the antidepressants that we're prescribing, what we're doing when we're given an antidepressant most of the time is blocking the reuptake of a neurotransmitter such as serotonin or epinephrine or dopamine. So those are able to tickle the receptors on the outside of the cell just a little bit longer. Those cause an intracellular messenger cascade system to to light up, and it sends a messenger down to the nucleus where it stimulates DNA to crank out RNA, and then the RNA make proteins. And some of those proteins become things like more receptors that are sent back out to the cell membrane. Some of them are brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And if you have enough BDNF, the brain stays healthy. The pathways are preserved. And in fact, we believe now that if you have enough BDNF, you continue to lay down new pathways, which is different than what they told me in school. In medical school, they told me that I had all the neurons that I was ever going to get when I was an adolescent, and it was all downhill from there. And I just turned 50 last week, and I'm starting to think, is that true or not? Am I losing all my neurons? And I've reminded my children, no, it's not the case, because I have enough BDNF, so I'm laying down new pathways. But in depressed patients, they don't have enough BDNF, so we tickle the receptors, increase the BDNF, and it is protective to the neurons and to the pathways. I can't think of BDNF without thinking about Nancy Muntner, who is the illustrator for Stephen Stahl's wonderful psychopharmacology textbooks. And she always uh, pictures BDNF as this little watering can, kind of watering your neurons and making them grow. I love it. And that's a great way. It's fertilizer. You're pouring it on the brain, keeping that brain healthy. The sad thing is if somebody doesn't have enough fertilizer and they don't have enough of it over time, you start getting hippocampal volume loss. And at some point, it becomes irreversible. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dan Diamond. We are discussing neurobiology of depression. Dan, do you really think when we used to talk about, say, SSRIs with patients, we drew our nice little pictures and showed them the reuptake of serotonin being blocked, and, and that was the whole story. This is how your medicines work. What do you tell your patients now? I tell them it's a little bit more complicated story than we thought before, but it's certainly one that I've yet to find a patient that couldn't comprehend at least the basics that we understand. I'm stressing with my patients things like, Depression goes beyond your brain and involves your entire central nervous system. In fact, depression impacts your entire body. So we take a total person approach to the treatment of depression. But if we're going to look specifically at these pathways, there's a couple different things to think about. On the serotonin side, and there's not rock-solid science differentiating between serotonin and norepinephrine, but what I think of when I think of serotonin versus norepinephrine, serotonin has more to do with mood. Norepinephrine has a lot to do with short-term memory, working memory, vigilance, and mood. I want to have a balanced approach when I'm looking at treating my patients, but I talk to them about the fact that if we don't treat you and you just opt to, for example, and I have some patients that just don't want to take any medications, they'd rather go home and watch funny movies or do something else and see if that works, think positive thoughts. I will negotiate with them based on this BDNF data maybe a couple of weeks watching funny movies and then have them come back. And I talked to them about this concept of if you don't have enough BDNF floating around in your brain, over time you're going to lose some of these pathways. And we may be able to get them back or the majority of them back early on, but the longer you stay depressed, 
the more difficult it's going to be to get you well. Now, what about the role of stress and cortisol? I kind of wish that I had a time travel machine so I could go forward and take a look at this and see what the answer is. And this is what I mean by the plot thickening. You think about cortisol, and one of the things that comes to my mind is diabetes. As you have cortisol levels going up, it, it impacts glucose metabolism and sets patients up for having insulin resistance and eventually diabetes. But if you also increase cortisol, the other thing that happens is BDNF drops. So maybe there's a common link between depression and diabetes, way more than the fact that people, when you tell them that they have diabetes, get depressed because it's a bad illness, or people that are depressed don't eat well, and so they end up with diabetes. It may be that there's a common link there, and it may come down to this whole concept of having elevated cortisol levels. But so often patients say, they, you know, they really don't have any reason to be depressed or they're not stressed. How do you sort all that out? I can't even tell you the number of times in my practice where I've had patients that walk in and say, I shouldn't be depressed. Everything's fine in my life. It brings up this concept of kindling, and this was described by, believe it or not, Kindler. Kindler describes the concept of kindling specifically looking at depression. Now, kindling has been described previously looking at seizure disorders. The more seizures somebody has, the more likely they are to have another seizure. But the same thing applies in depression. And what happens is, over time, the stress is cumulative. So early on in somebody's life, it may take a lot of stress to sort of push them over to the point where they get depressed. But later in life, it takes very little stress at all. The other thing to remember is that stress is defined as any change that you have to adapt to. And it's not always positive or negative. It could be, you know, either way. Our patients tend to think that stress is only a negative thing, but it could be very stressful to take time off and, and go on a vacation, for example, or very stressful to get married because then they're changing the time that they're getting up and going to sleep and the food that they're eating and so many things change when people get, get married. So it could be a happy time, but it could be a very stressful time in somebody's life, or it could be that they've had so much cumulative stress throughout their life that their depression threshold has dropped dramatically. We know that there's over 100 different genes that are involved in depression and setting people up for increased risk of depression, and it's probably a combination of their genetic makeup plus a certain amount of stress that they're able to handle before they're tipped over to the point where they become depressed. We've learned so much about the neurobiology of depression, certainly since most of us were in training or in school. What's the bottom line for physicians? How do we incorporate this in what we do every day? I really truly believe that most patients want to know. They're very curious how things work. And if I take the time to explain to them some of the science behind why we're doing what we're doing, not only are they, are they more likely to do what we prescribe, but they're more likely to be compliant or adherent to the treatment over time. You know, some 40% of patients will stop their antidepressants within their first two months. And that's data based on looking at HEDIS information from the insurance companies on the amount of refills that patients get when they're treated for depression. And it just drops off like a cliff at that two-month point. So education's a good thing. Education's a great thing. Seeing patients back on a regular basis and, and having this sort of sense with the patient that we're in this together. We're partners. I tell my patients, 
you're depressed and we're going to treat you. This is your first time being depressed, and it's not a complicated depression, so we'll treat you for about nine months to a year, which is a little longer than the national recommendations. But I live in the Seattle area, so sometimes it's a little gray around here. I encourage them to take a longer view at this, and then I see them back on a regular basis to make sure that we're partnering together and they're staying adherent to the game plan. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Dan Diamond. We have been discussing recent advances in the neurobiology of depression. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.